Now, there is a reusable space shuttle capable of making repeated trips into space. And there is a space laboratory which takes advantage of this economical transportation to and from orbit. It is called Space Lab. It fits in the shuttle payload bay and converts the shuttle into a versatile research center. Welcome back to another episode of ESA Explores Time and Space. In this series, we're exploring the history of Europeans in orbit with the experts and astronauts who helped shape it. I'm Ali Kohler, co-hosting with Stephen Ennis, and this podcast is Go for Launch. This. Nie. Ato. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Stere. Drei. Dwa. One. As we learned in our last episode, science has long been a driving force for Europe's participation in space. Today, we explore the European-built facility that saw astronaut-operated space research take flight like never before, science laboratory, and the ultimate spacecraft accessory, Space Lab. It all started back in 1969. NASA astronaut Neil Armstrong had just set foot on the moon, proving that the boldest goals could be achieved. But to carry out post-Apollo programs within reasonable budgets, NASA needed a new, reusable vehicle. One that would carry astronauts and cargo to space without costing hundreds of millions of dollars per flight. To do this, they needed a partner. So they invited ESA's predecessors, ISRO, the European Space Research Organisation, and ALDO, the European Launcher Development Organization, to participate in early studies around what is now known as the Space Transportation System Space Shuttle. From its first launch in 1981, NASA's unique orbital space plane transformed human spaceflight. It dispatched and partially returned many satellites and deep space probes. It helped to end the Cold War by docking with Russia's Mir space station. It made assembly of the International Space Station possible, and on 28th of November 1983, it launched for a 10-day mission with ESA's first astronaut, Ulf Meerbold, and Space Lab on board. But what exactly was Space Lab, and how did it enable that first flight of a non-American on a NASA spacecraft? We asked one of the first ESA engineers to work on Space Lab, who went on to become the first ESA International Space Station program manager. Alan Thurkettle to explain. Space Lab itself was a laboratory. It was a laboratory that was intended to fit inside the space shuttle, the orbiter, the payload bay of the orbiter. It had a pressurized component, a module where astronauts could, could work, and it had platforms called pallets on which payloads that wanted to be exposed to space or to do Earth observations could be performed. And Europe was to design and develop this collection of, of items and deliver them to NASA for free, in exchange for which we would get half of the payload of the first flight, first two flights, uh, bigger pardon. If I understand correctly, there's kind of a direct connection between Space Lab as a joint effort with NASA and the first European getting on shuttle, right? Yes, the, the first flight of uh, Space Lab, eventually in November of 1983, it featured Ulf Meerbold, who was the German astronaut that was the first to fly on the, uh, the shuttle. Yeah. And his backup was uh, Wubo Ockels, the Dutch astronaut. And Wubo flew on the third or fourth of the, shuttle, the Space Lab flights, which was a German flight, in fact, it was called D1. The success of that first Space Lab flight set the stage for many more. 
In fact, over the course of 30 years, Spacelab modules flew on the Space Shuttle 22 times and totaled 244 days in orbit. The development of Spacelab was also unprecedented for Europe, and it wasn't always smooth flying for Alan and his engineering colleagues. I think when people started to talk about Europeans flying in orbit, then the public became a little bit more interested. When the astronaut selection was done, those countries that had representatives in the initial astronaut corps got a lot more publicity and a lot more awareness of what was going on. But frankly, the, the team that was working on Space Lab was rather overwhelmed with the task that it had to do. That's the polite way of putting it. We didn't quite know what we were doing. We'd never worked on anything like this before. Now, a very competent technical team was put together by the management. They recruited people from the aircraft industry because, after all, people fly on airplanes, so people fly on shuttles, so that sounds like a good idea. They recruited them from NASA. People that were uh, retiring from NASA were drafted into uh, to our team. We recruited people that had worked, Europeans that had worked in American industry on Apollo. So we, we had a, a team of people that knew a lot of good technical things about a lot of sort of related things, but we knew nothing at all about managing the human spaceflight program. We were a technical team. The fact that Lab was going to be something that sat inside the orbiter meant that really NASA were in charge anyway. I mean, they, uh, they, there was a partnership, but there was a, clearly a master and a pupil not only in terms of importance, but also in terms of competence and capability, of course. Did that also underpin the technical exchange? I mean, was NASA free and open about passing on technical knowledge or technical experience, or was this something... NASA was superb from that point of view. They really were brilliant, and in particular, the Marshall Space Flight Center was superb. We, the Europeans, these aliens, had taken their sortie can away from them. We, we were doing this, and for the greater good, they decided that, okay, that's fine, that's what's going to happen. They put a resident into Nordvik to our team, who had been through the Skylab program. We also employed quite a number of industrial consultants that we put to industry, American consultants that had been through the Apollo program and the Skylab program. That also meant that the industrial guys had a very good learning curve. And I must say, the data exchange was really excellent. I never, ever came across a situation where we were told, uh, well, no, we, we, we can't tell you that. Perhaps before we, we move off Spacelab, there was a big hill to climb when it came to making Spacelab happen. And like you said, there was technical, I say, cliff to hurdle. There was, there was political aspects. Was there ever a point when you were working in the program that you got the feeling like you weren't sure if this was going to pull through or if you weren't sure this was going to come together? No, I never had the feeling that we weren't going to make it. I very often had the feeling that we were doing it the hard way. It was a big hill to climb. They always covered in ice and we were all wearing Teflon shoes, I think. It was a struggle to get up there at times, but I don't think anybody ever thought that we weren't going to make it. We came very close to not making it. Okay, brief interjection. You would have heard Alan mention Sortie Can. This was the original name for the concept that went on to become Spacelab. We think Spacelab's a little bit better, don't you? Skylab was NASA's first space station. It was occupied by three different astronaut crews for about 24 weeks between May 1973 and February 1974. Also, get ready for some space acronyms coming up. You might hear Alan mention PDR, now that stands for Preliminary Design Review, and KSC stands for Kennedy Space Center. Okay, now back to you Alan. In a way, we weren't helped very much right in the early days because 
When the proposals came in from industry and we selected the winner, that was fine. But NASA said, that's not the space lab that we want. That space lab that you guys are just about to sign a contract for is more than a ton too heavy. The thing weighed about 10 tons, I think. That, that was a huge uh, amount of uh, mass. And they said, until you get that, that out, we're not going to say that this program is going. So, okay, it was a, that was a big deal. Yes, it was too heavy because it didn't leave much space for the payloads, et cetera. So it was right. We had to get rid of the ton. But we had to do it in literally in a few weeks uh, with an industry that knew as little about human spaceflight as the agency did. So we did it in six weeks. Thereby, of course, we introduced a whole hell of a lot of changes from what they, they planned to do in the first place. But that was rather typical of the way that we behaved in uh, those days. If we didn't like something in the design, we said, oh, why don't you make it round instead of square? We were worried more about the design than we were about fulfilling the requirements. One of the lessons that, that Space Lab taught us, I'm sure other areas of the agency learned it probably even quicker than we did, but we certainly learned it. We only just knew what the thing looked like in the first couple of years. And at the end of that couple of years, we had a, a preliminary design review. Well, it was indeed preliminary, <laughs> and it was a it was a complete failure. the uh, The documentation was not great. Uh, there were bits and pieces that didn't hang together. It, it was a complete mess. It was a it was a total total failure. In principle, yes, the program was in jeopardy, but it was far too important to go further than be in jeopardy. A serious management change was made, and for three months, the director general of ESA was the project manager of Space Lab, Roy Gibson. At that point, I mean, that's a sign that it really had momentum. That all the that's a sign that it had momentum. It's interesting because Roy Gibson is an expert on Oriental languages, but he was absolutely fantastic as a, as a project manager, I must say. But he explained to us on the uh, day after the board, the PDR, we got three months to, uh, to put this right. On Monday morning, all of you will fly to Bremen. Prime contractor was in Bremen and sit with them for the week. You will work with them for the week, and uh, there will be a plan of what you've got to achieve during that week, and I will come and see you on Friday afternoon. If I'm satisfied with, uh, with what you tell me on that Friday afternoon, you'll be allowed to go home, and you'll be on the first plane on Monday morning to go back to Bremen again. If I'm not satisfied, you'll stay there over the weekend until it's right. We worked like for three months, and because we were all so scared of Roy Gibson, we all managed to get home on the Friday nights because we always did as we were told. And it was really a fun time. We ended up with a new project manager. We ended up with a perfectly successful PDR. It wasn't a perfect PDR, but it, it certainly met the, uh, the requirements. So after all this blood, sweat, and tears, after finally climbing to the top of this icy slope... Yeah, he I, used ropes. Yeah, I, I always I always think about um, these missions that are, you know, 10, 20, so many years in the making. And then one day they have to go sit on a launch pad on top of a bunch of explosives and go <laughs> to space. What was your feeling? Did you have to be sedated to, to, to watch this thing launch? <laughs> no, not at all. It's not just a matter of finishing the development and sticking it on the launch pad. This thing was flying in the orbiter, so we had to deliver an engineering model to, uh, to NASA, to KSC, who would then learn how it sort of worked and uh, how it would interface with the shuttle and everything else and how they would generate their own test procedures. Then we sent the flight model over there for its integration and test, and for the first time, that flight model met its payload complement. There were 70 payloads, 7-0 payloads that flew on the first Space Lab mission. And the first time that any of those payloads ever saw a space lab was at KSC. Half of them were delivered, uh, developed in Europe and half of them were developed in the States. 
gradually we got closer and closer to the launch date to the point where space lab was now ready to go physically inside the orbiter comes the great day we're going to check for the functional connections with the shuttle so the guy in the aft flight deck who's pretending to be the commander switches on the control panel in the aft flight deck absolutely nothing happened in space lab not a thing not a light not a flicker nothing it was ignored this activation command completely of course, uh, the NASA people are bloody Europeans. Uh, so we had to, to do a, a lot of troubleshooting. I mean, we did silly things like checking, were the wires broken? Were they, in fact, connected properly? Uh, we checked out everything, every functionality, everything that we could do on our side. And one of my guys, I, I was leading that team over there, one of my guys said, you know, we ought to check into the R flight deck and see if something going on up there. Okay, go talk to your counterpart and go do it. And he came back a couple of hours later and he said, it's, it's all fixed. They'd got the test port connected wrongly on the orbiter side. And when we put it into the right thing, everything activated perfectly. This was wonderful because, A, because it worked, which is the most important thing. But B, because personnel at Kennedy Space Center, who were getting very frustrated by this time, were rather impressed that, uh, that one of these aliens could come along and tell them what was wrong on their side of the interface such that the whole thing worked. From that moment onwards, I must say, we, we had total respect from the KSC people. And so, yes, we got very excited as, as we got towards launch, and we rolled out onto the launch pad, and uh, we were within three or four days of, uh, of launching when some inspector, a NASA inspector, noticed that there were cracks on what, the nozzles of the, uh, the solid rocket motors. They had to roll the thing back and, uh, and change them out. I had to be sedated that day because by now I'd worked nine years on this project and I was looking forward to a launch <laughs> and now the thing was coming back. So that was uh, that was a bit tough and it, and it took them about two and a half months before we could uh, fly. We, we ended up rolling back out and, uh, and launching in, uh, in November of 1983. Did I have to be sedated? No, no, no. I mean, I was excited as hell. My team and I were working in the Kennedy Control Center. When it goes on to, uh, to automatic, the countdown, a few minutes before the, uh, the launch itself, there was nothing that any of us could do. So we, we agreed we were all going to run up on, onto the roof and we were going to watch the thing and we were going to do it together with a hug. The funny thing was that uh, having made that wonderful plan, very, very sociable plan and everything else, not one of us went up onto the roof because we were so plugged into looking at what was going on on the monitors we were there until the guy said zero, and we saw the firing and looked out the window. We have main engine start, three, two, one, solid motor ignition, and liftoff. Liftoff of Columbia and the first flight of the European Space Agency Space Lab. The shuttle has cleared the tower. Roger, roll. And I looked around and every one of them was uh, still in there. <laughs> it, was, it was quite remarkable. It was a very, very funny, uh, funny thing. Huh? It was a very, very emotional day. Those missions were, uh, were very successful. I said there were 70 payloads. There were 73, if my memory serves me right. And 72 of them worked on the first one. Uh, they got data, good information science from uh, 72 of the 73. And all of the space lab missions, really, uh, they, they were really quite successful, and uh, they did very well. We seriously felt as though, as a result of that program, we, the community, I don't mean ESA, but really industry in particular as well, we felt we'd come of age, that, uh, that we'd really gone through 
a pioneering learning phase that was as exciting as hell. We'd enjoyed ourselves uh, enormously. We'd all made uh, very good friends. We were all very respectful of each other. We were ready for the next challenge, that was for sure. We started with Intercosmos, and I thought, how are we going to cover anything in this fascinating program? There's just so many stories to tell. And I guess that's going to be a theme for this series. Yeah, I think it is going to be a bit of a theme. It's so hard to condense the content. Everyone that we talk to about the history of European spaceflight is really fascinating. So we kicked off our work on the shuttle and space lab era by recording with Alan, as you've just heard. And even after a whole hour of talking with him, we'd only just covered the basics really, hadn't we? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And now after speaking to Ulf Merbold, spoiler alert, you're going to hear him in the next episode, who was the first European to fly on the space shuttle. And during Space Lab's inaugural launch, feel like we could pretty much make a full series just on that first Space Lab flight. For sure. And as Ellen alluded to, Space Lab really set the stage for European human spaceflight. It was in a way one of the first human spaceflight ventures that really brought together and relied on the hand-in-hand cooperation of multiple European states. Spacelab opened the door to so much for European space exploration down the road. There's a clear connection between Spacelab and ESA's Columbus module on the International Space Station today. Before working on Spacelab, Alan worked as an engineer on Concorde, which already is like this historical engineering project. To be honest, as someone With an engineering degree, I feel like I've made some career mistakes. Clearly, I need to somehow get myself on one of those next ambitious European space exploration programs. Do you think the Mars sample return team needs someone with podcasting experience? I mean, I don't see why not. Don't count yourself out yet. Alan found his space lab job in a newspaper. So keep an ear to the ground. Yeah, I guess, well, newspapers are kind of going out of business nowadays, so... uh... Maybe maybe I should stick with YouTube. Uh, that's that's where I get most of my content. Actually, I really developed a love for Space Lab from some old archival footage on YouTube. There's a NASA documentary called A New Generation Space Lab Mission 1. I promise you, you will not be disappointed by its classic 80s documentary style. I'd, I'd really highly recommend giving it a watch. We'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, all of that old footage is amazing and shuttle itself was an amazing machine and then someone had the brilliant and bonkers idea to just stick a pressurized can in its cargo bay and use it as a laboratory i mean i guess it was a bit more technical than that as we heard from alan but it added this extra dimension to a vehicle that was already a miracle of engineering so as you can hear this is a fascinating topic uh, for both myself and for ali and we hope you agree with us Most of all, we hope you enjoyed this episode because there's even more to come next month as we talk to Ulf Merbold and we stay in the shuttle and space lab era. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do want to give us feedback, let us know what you're enjoying, what you might not be enjoying, what you want to hear. You can find us on Twitter at ESA Spaceflight. Just use the hashtag ESA Explores. Also, wherever you listen to us, consider rating and subscribing so we can reach even more space fans. 